I had a couple of friends in particular who very firmly were saying that there was something amiss about the climate change narrative. Now, I wasn't actually willing to listen to what they had to say. So I was one of those people that they kind of just said, oh, that's a bit of a conspiracy theory. That whole psychological operation, you could say, was really showing that I didn't quite understand in the way I believe how the world worked. Really, it took a lot of courage to say, well, actually, I'm not sure that this is the case anymore and I feel something different. You know, putting my head above the parapet. And it certainly did challenge friendships in a big way. My take on it is that CO2 was the perfect focus of concern because it was irrelevant to the real environmental issues and thus a great distraction. And yet it could easily be portrayed as the major problem to be solved. And solving this problem meant imposing top-down restrictions and controls on humanity. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's returning guest, Daniel Thompson Mills. After spending decades in the environmental movement, events of recent years caused Daniel to reevaluate some of his core beliefs, a process that ultimately led him to author the book, The Case Against Man-Made Climate Change. In this interview, I focus on asking Daniel how this dramatic cognitive shift came about, why certain facts had previously been invisible to him, and how his change has been received by the people around him. I started out by going back in time to ask how his concern for global warming began. I became a, an environmentalist in the late 80s when I was a student, and I, uh, one of the first things I did was I joined Friends of the Earth at that time and I remember having a poster um, I put up a poster in the on the uh, the wall of the hall of residence where I was at and it was a friends of the earth poster which graphically showed um, how global warming occurs <laughs> and um, and highlighting that that problem um, so really right from the word go of becoming an environmentalist I was you know, aware of that issue. And um, it was part of the things that I was concerned of. But over over the years, I certainly felt that um, more and more, really, that the whole climate change thing was being um, emphasised too much. And it was dominating the narrative, you know, the, the debate, the discussion, to the exclusion of all the other things. And for me, um, I did believe in man-made climate change, but I saw it as as the icing on the cake that, well, of course, we're, we're affecting every ecosystem, every part of the ecosystem around the world. And of course, we're, we're also affecting, we must be affecting the, the atmosphere. And I just saw that as, well, it's just, you know, as I say, the icing on the cake. But to focus exclusively on that, I certainly was critical of that. But yeah, uh, uh, right up until the beginning of 2021, I was a firm believer in man-made climate change and I was reading the IPCC reports uh, or the reporting of the reports rather. Uh, and I, when I was living in a in a self-build permaculture community in a woodland, which is a big part of what I was doing for a, a long time, we were predicating our whole um, case on being there and why why this was important around the IPCC reports, and, and climate change in general. Okay, so I would imagine 
that in the 80s, you would have placed yourself into something of a minority by expressing serious concerns about climate change, because it wasn't an on the street kind of concern the way it was today. You didn't have the kind of climate protest. I was a child at the time, and I remember Captain Planet being on TV. But the big environmental concern I remember then was the ozone layer, the hole in the ozone layer. So did you perceive that at the time that it was a kind of, did you feel you were engaged in a real uphill battle to get people to pay attention to climate change at that, at that time? Yes, I mean, it, it wasn't, and it wasn't a, an, an issue that I was massively focused on. It was just part of, uh, I mean, at the time, Twyford Down, for example, was was um, being talked about a lot, and it was it, it was the beginning of that whole road road building program that where where protests kicked off against it, beginning with Twyford Down. So. Uh, I was reading um, particularly the, the the newsletter or the, the magazine that Friends of the Earth were producing every so often, once a month or whatever. And um, climate change was part of that, but it wasn't really dominating like it does now. Um, and it was a lot to do with woodlands under threat and species under threat and all of that sort of thing. But uh, over the years, it became more and more dominant. Right. Now, just to pick up on that one of the things i've heard about the climate change is that it's paradoxically can be a kind of anti-environmentalist agenda in that any changes to an ecosystem that causes a species to decline say polluting or the rerouting of waterways or anything or like with the massive forest fires uh, this can all just be pegged on climate change which is a problem that everyone is responsible for and therefore no one is responsible for so you can carry it becomes an excuse to not look at things like pollution issues or the dumping of waste or changes to environments for industrial reasons that are having an effect on species it becomes a way of like the thing that you can peg everything onto and i'm wondering from what you said there did you directly observe that kind of thing going on charles eisenstein in an article recently really voiced um this in a, in a beautiful eloquent way and i think if I read out what he says, it's just one paragraph, mm. that article, then it kind of, he says it better than I possibly can. And the article was um, came out in March of this year, and it's called How the Environmental Movement Can Find Its Way Again. And here's what he says. There's an emerging understanding among many environmentalists that we have made a, a scientific, strategic, rhetorical and political error by reducing the ecological crisis to climate and the climate crisis to carbon. Earth is best understood as a living being with a complex physiology whose health depends on the health of her constituent organs. Her organs are the forests, the wetlands, the grasslands, the estuaries, the reefs, the apex predators, the keystone species, the soiled insects, and indeed every intact ecosystem and every species on Earth. If we continue to, to degrade them, drain them, cut them, poison them, pave them and kill them, Earth will die a death of a million cuts. She will die of organ failure, regardless of the levels of greenhouse gases. Now, what I particularly like about that article is he's not dismissing in, in any way man-made climate change. And it, it gives a sense that he, he believes that carbon dioxide is having a greenhouse gas effect. And I, I kind of see this as a, as a lovely uh, bridging piece, really, between those that are completely firm believers in man-made climate change 
and those such as myself who are very critical of it and talk about the, the power and control agenda behind it. Hmm. And and really, th this is what I what he dis what he says there very eloquently. Charles Eisenstein is what I felt for a long time, um, and now I even feel even more so that the whole carbon dioxide narrative is both a distraction from the real issues and actually also an inversion of the truth. When I can go into that, if you like. Okay, I I would love, but I just want to slow you down a bit and what i'm keen to ask is you in this period you're living in an eco village that is focused on a lot of environmental issues there's a lot of environmental reasons justifications for doing that motivations for doing that uh, one of which is climate change i'm assuming you're surrounded by people who are very much of the same mindset when it comes to climate change um i wonder you would have at that time of course been aware that there were climate change deniers out there uh, people who did not believe that there was a, a controversy about this, that maybe people who are firmly committed to it don't feel it's a controversy at all. They feel it's a, a fake controversy. So do you, did you have any opinions on the, the, the Christopher Monktons of the world or at that time, the, the climate change deniers? Well, yes. I mean, it's not something I gave a lot of my time or focus on, really. But, um, I mean, yeah, Nigel Lawson was another one that I was aware hmm. of. And, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I went along with that story that, you know, here were right wing people who just, you know, wanted um, things to carry on as they were and um, uh, were stuck in the muds about the, the science and how the, the, the vast majority of scientists around the world were in agreement or consensus about this this issue and so on and so on. Um, so, yes. Um, but I didn't. I didn't massively have lots of vitriol for these people or anything. But I, I certainly wasn't a dissident from that that perspective. Yeah, and I think it's. I'm interested to ask that because it's interesting to know why it's hard to reach or why it's hard to communicate with people who are enmeshed in a climate change catastrophe view of the world. How talking about the science or something isn't necessarily going to land because they have a a set of uh, assumptions that preclude that conversation from occurring because it's it's right-wing people funding nonsense science to contradict the overwhelming majority of scientists and that's what i that's the dynamic i see playing out where it's very difficult to have a conversation across that ideological boundary i i would totally agree i think there's two aspects to it the first aspect is that the encouragement by the powers that shouldn't be to for people to you to have these dismissive phrases like conspiracy theorist, climate denier, whatever, to just dismiss anything that's not in accordance with the mainstream narrative. So, um, uh, it, yeah, you don't really even have to go there and listen or debate it or think <laughs> if this person or this point of view has any relevance. So I think that that's just a general thing that goes on. But in, in relation to the environmental movement in particular, I know obviously lots and lots of people in the environmental movement who are doing fantastic work. And why, you know, why are they in the environmental movement? Why are they grassroots activists? It's because they're absolutely passionate about Mother Earth and they feel the huge grief and trauma at what's happening to her 
as a result of human activity, which is undoubtedly the case, um, and the materialist consumerist mindset and so on. And um, enmeshed in that is the whole calm dark side story. So it's completely enmeshed with that passion. So um, any questioning of the, the calm dark side side of things uh, it, it just can't be prized apart <laughs> from their passion and their concern generally for the planet and, and what's going on because they've been, well, let's face it, I would put it, this is how I would put it, they've been brainwashed to believe this this story um, and they've been brainwashed for a reason. So this is why I, I, I particularly wanted to bring up this piece by Charles Eisenstein because I, I kind of, I feel very strongly uh, that there needs to be ways of trying to find common ground hmm. um, and and bridge the gap there between those of us who might be labelled climate deniers. I mean, how can you deny the climate? You know, <laughs> it's a ridiculous phrase anyway. Um, yeah, the climate is the climate, you know. <laughs> Nobody's denying there is a climate or that there's climate change. It's just what causes climate change. So let's loop back around in a minute to how to communicate, okay? Um, and first off, I'd like you now to talk through, where did this ideological egg start to crack for you? What was the first part that, what was that, can you recall maybe the first thought you had that, hang on, is everything as it seems here? And I, I suppose I'm also curious, was that psychologically uncomfortable to go through a shift like that? For quite a while before um, uh, the the 2020 2021 era came about i had a couple of friends in particular who um very firmly were saying that there was something amiss about the uh, the climate change narrative now i wasn't actually willing to listen to what they had to say so i was one of those people that they kind of just said oh that's a bit of a conspiracy theory and you know uh, how ridiculous hmm. but i'd never actually sat down with them and said so what is it that you actually believe you know so there we go anyway um i, I explained in our last interviews you may remember that um uh we it's a big bit of a long story but essentially um uh the community that I was involved in in this self-build permaculture co uh, community in a woodland we eventually were forced to leave because of the authorities. Um, and I actually left in 2018. And because of the, the grief and trauma around that, essentially, um, my health went into decline. I, I'd lost my mojo um, because my whole purpose in life had been taken away from me and, uh, and so on. Um, that's a whole big story. But where it ended up was that the bottom fell out of my health in 2020. So just as the uh, the lockdown was being announced, I went into my own personal lockdown um, and had a year of um, being very depleted and, and so on and going through the, the mainstream medical system. Anyway, coming out of that and as I gradually began to build my strength again, uh, I was absolutely hungry to find out why, what had happened to me, why had I become so depleted? And I'd, I'd developed a so-called viral illness along the way uh, when I didn't feel that the the the, um, the explanations of what what that was about were were adequate, you know, on the mainstream explanations and 
and so on. Anyway, so I started researching, and now it was alongside the time that the whole um, roll up your sleevers um, narrative um, agenda was being rolled out. Program, that's the word, program was being rolled out. And I remembered vaguely from the 90s that um, um, having uh, things put into your body in that way was not a good idea, but I'd really forgotten the, the details. So I was hungry to understand that myself. And as I was finding out more and more and discovering more and more, I started writing it down, partly to aid my own understanding, but also partly to share with others um, so that they could make an informed choice as to whether to go through that medical procedure or not. And that led on generally really to researching, as I say, the whole of the whole topic of biology and medicine. And uh, because of the encouragement of friends, it ended up being put together in a book, which I self-published. And I, I never expected that that would be the case, but that's how, uh, that's where life took me. Now, um, my friends at that time that I was involved in were all those that were dissidents of the lockdown. And we were meeting, you know, in contravention of the, of the guidelines and all of that sort of thing. And there was a, every, you know, every topic imaginable was on the table for discussion. And I was really enjoying that. And I, I, I felt right, I guess, having discovered that the whole topic of biology and medicine was a, and from the from the conventional point of view was massively based on fraud that uh, I was hungry to learn more and I started questioning everything really now and I had more and more friends by this stage who were saying well climate change is you know another thing that we need focus on and you've obviously got a a talent for <laughs> taking information and assimilating it and 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 putting it in an accessible way for people to understand we need we need would you be do up for doing another book on climate change and I said, oh, gosh, I've already written just one book. <laughs> I don't feel I've got the energy to, to go off and write another book. But I was curious and I just thought, well, I'll, um, I, I'll, I'll start researching and I'll just write down a couple of sides of bullet points. So I get the main, you know, just to help me out. Well, Richard, I started writing and it just didn't stop. I became absolutely obsessed. Um, and I was living and breathing climate change. I was dreaming it. I was having debates in my head and so on. And then that was all in the run-up eventually to, um, was it COP27, the one that happened in Glasgow, mm -hmm. um, where lots of people were talking about it, you know, both locally and in the mainstream. Uh, at that point, I wasn't quite ready. <laughs> I hadn't quite finished what I was writing, but I was sort of so eager to get it out to the world. But I, I just felt, no, 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 I need to wait because I knew it was going to be controversial. And really, it took a lot of courage to say, well, actually, I, you know, I'm not sure that this is the case anymore and I feel something different. Uh, you know, putting my head above the parapet. And it certainly did challenge friendships in a big way. When I did that, um, very close friendships. Okay, I'm just going to pause you there because I'd be interested to know about the, the fallout of it. But what I what I didn't hear, and I'd like you to talk about, is the the moment that the shift occurred in you. Whether it was one thing that 
that caused you to go, oh goodness, or whether it was a more gradual thing. And I'm also curious, at the start of the book, had you already made a firm shift in your mind where you knew what the result of the book was going to be? Or were, were you kind of open and assessing both sides of the discussion at the start of the writing process and then gravitated to one side? Yeah, I was I was questioning with an open mind. I hadn't I hadn't got a firm view in any way because until I'd done the research, I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand it. You know, I'd have to. I, I needed to start out with a with a with a with a clean sheet. Um, so I certainly did that. I remember I remember asking a friend who was encouraging me to write another book. I said, so can you just explain, you know, just say in a nutshell, why it is that, you know, man-made climate change is, is a controlled and power agenda or isn't what's actually going on? And I was expecting some sort of little technical nugget, which, I mean, I would say now, well, actually, climate change is happening, but it's caused by the sun, you know, <laughs> Um, that's what I would focus on probably is that, you know, if I just had one thing to say about it. But the way he said it was, he said, I'll tell you why. It's because they tell you it's so. <laughs> and I felt so frustrated by that answer <laughs> at the time. It's like, you know, that doesn't give me any detail, any mm. meat, you know, to get into. But actually, with hindsight, in a way, that was the best answer he could have given. <laughs> Uh, you know, I see more and more now that whatever's being pushed in the mainstream uh, by the corporate media and so on. Um, well, who are they, you know, the, the, the servants of? They're the servants of the corporations and ultimately the, 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 the you know, the ones even behind the corporations, the, the, the bankers, the, the, the central bankers and so on. So, yeah, if there's something really being pushed, it's usually for a reason of control and power. And I've seen that more and more. So it was a great answer, <laughs> even though it was very frustrating. Yeah, I understand how you could have a totally different perspective on that answer, depending on where you're at. Okay, so I'd obviously like people to pick up the book and I'd recommend it. And I found it a valuable resource for all the different things you point to. And I certainly have a, a list of things I'm going to look into further from it. So it's a, it's a great book. And for that reason, um, I don't want you to necessarily just list out everything that's in, in the book here. But I would like if you could maybe give me some bullet points of what were the things that really hit you, uh, that, that moved you away from the anthropogenic climate change view? Well, I think there's probably two things that are really key. The first one is, and I've discovered this over and over again, when I'm able to sort of really analyze the um, the mainstream perspective and realize that I've been so conditioned and I'm able to burst through the conditioning and come out the other side. Um, and then off, often, uh, well, it, yeah, very often, I find that actually <laughs> the reality of what's going on is very obvious when you think about it. So the key thing with, climate change is that we're a very tiny blip in the solar system and there's this massive great ball of electromagnetic energy it's called the sun and we live in a solar system it's called that for a reason and the sol the sun has a, an influence over 100 astronomical units we're only one astronomical unit away from the sun so we're relatively close to the sun and 
it's having a huge effect on us every day and we just need to look up in the sky and we can see it and you know and at night things you know go dormant and in the day everything wakes up and becomes alive you know the sun powers everything on the on planet and of course it powers the climate <laughs> and we can look back in history and through the ice core records and see that um, there's been periods of history when the planet has been much warmer than today this is in human history i'm talking about Hmm. such as the medieval warm period or the Holocene maximum, which happened in the Bronze Age. And humans thrived at that time. And then there's been periods when the weather, the climate has been much colder than it is today, um, such as the Maunder minimum in the 1600s, when there was ice fairs on the Thames regularly in the winter, and the Dalton minimum in the early 1800s. So this is well before the year of what we would call, you know, what's being called man-made climate change. So we can we can readily see that the sun is having a massive effect on what's going on down here. So that's the first big thing I would stress. And, and can I just uh, interject there, yes. Daniel? Were you unaware of the things like the medieval warm period and the cold spike in the 1600s in the years prior to that, or had you Absolutely. been aware? Right, you've been to, okay, okay. Yeah. It doesn't get talked about, does it? In fact, it's been airbrushed out. A, a lot of quite the, literally on the graphs they've been flattened out like the hockey stick i know you, you talk yeah. about the yes. michael man's hockey stick graph in your in your book yes. and... that's that's correct yes now the other thing that just makes it so obvious to me and well as i said earlier i knew at least what was being reported was being talked about um whenever there was an ipcc report published every couple of years or whatever it is I'd hear all the all the headlines and and uh, and we we detailed some of the detail in our planning applications, for example, for the the project I was involved in. But I didn't know how the IPCC had come about, who set it up, and I didn't know uh, what the remit of it was. And nobody talks about that. Well, once you know the the, the whole background to that, it just becomes very clear and from my point of view that um there's something very dodgy going on here because there was a guy called morris strong and shall i just give you a little brief overview of his yes, life story please do i think that'll be very interesting for everyone yeah so morris strong was born in the backwaters of canada and you know to no particular special family or anything like that and he decided to go out and make his fortune and lo and behold, he got involved in the oil industry and became an oil magnet, essentially. He did make a lot of money from the oil industry. As a result of that, he got matey with the Rockefellers. Um, and as you, as you probably know, the Rockefellers are the main family, really, uh, the big oil family. And they saw him as a useful person to be their front man, or you could say proxy, for the agenda that they wanted to roll out. So uh, Morris Strong was given this role, really, of, and, of, of organising a series of environmental conferences, which I believe began with the Stockholm conference in the, in the late 70s, it might have been. Anyway, the key one that happened was the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, where for the first time, the, all the major world leaders so, uh, were there. You know, there was John Major... The prime minister at the time there was 
uh, Clinton, that the president, the US president at the time and so on. And um, there were key um, decisions made there and, and things rolled out that kind of created the fabric for where, where we're at now, in particular Agenda 21, which has now also got Agenda 2030 been added to it. And around that time, I think it was just shortly before that Rio Earth Summit, um, the IPCC was formed by Morris Strong. So it was set up by Big Oil. <laughs> and um, what was the remit? Well, the remit was to examine the effects of anthropogenic global warming and how to and, and, and study ways to adapt to and mitigate it. So within that remit, it was totally focused on man-made climate change, as it's become known now. It was called global warming then. And all consideration of natural processes, natural cycles were excluded. So as far as I'm concerned, all the science from that point onward was fundamentally flawed because it wasn't taking into account all the evidence and was skewed very much in, it, it, towards highlighting what human beings were doing and the effects of that. And then, of course, we can go on to say, well, actually, and then it's not just that they're objectively examining all that evidence, but they're positively manipulating it and so on and so on. Okay, okay. I'll come back to the, the why this is going on in a minute and ask you to talk about what you see the agenda as. But just to return to the kind of communication thing. So you go through this shift and in writing the book, the evidence accumulates where you're now firmly on the other side of the line. And I just to say, I mean, other things in there, you talk about the, uh, is it 97% that statistic that gets bandied around the 97% yes, of scientists believe. Yes, and yes. Th that's something I probably hear that one more than any other, right? And yes. I think it's, it's reasonable that people assume when people publish these statistics, they're actually in some way a representation of reality. And that just completely isn't right it's and it's it's hard to get people over the incredulity that such a, a falsehood would be um portrayed as that well actually but would you actually maybe you would like to explain that rather than um the media i just think it's a an interesting one yeah well um in 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 my book uh, i i boil down the whole issue um or the whole topic to i think it's is it six pillars <laughs> um i'm trying to remember the number it's either i think it's six six pillars of of the case against man-made climate change. And the sixth one is um, something called Climate Gate. Now this occurred in 2009. And again, it was, a, it was a big deal at the time, but I was amazed when I was researching this in the early 2020s, as I've said, that I hadn't heard about Climate, climate Gate. Why had I not heard about it? Um, and why why people not talked about it in the circles I was in? Uh, essentially, what happened was that a whole series of emails were released by a whistleblower in 2009, and it all related in particular to the Climate Research Unit at East Anglia University, which was a key um, part of the institutional network behind the IPCC and the uh, climate models and essentially all, all all that was being portrayed about those, those you know that topic and um, there's various people involved there including professor michael mann who you mentioned earlier 
uh, who's a US guy. So anyway, these emails very clearly show how these people at the unit were manipulating evidence. So they were trying to get rid of the medieval warm period, as you mentioned, from the, 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 the records. And that ended up with the hockey stick graph, as we've talked about, where it was just flat until humans came, pretty much flat until humans came along. And all of a sudden, yeah, there we are. And, and the temperature just shoots up all of a sudden in the 20th century. Uh, and also how they were working to suppress and censor anybody who said anything different from the anthropogenic global warming line. So they were manipulating evidence they were censoring people and they were working actively to make sure that none of this got out through freedom of information requests and so on into the mainstream. Um, well, in the end, they were forced to because of the, the revelation that the, 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 the leaked emails showed. And I think at the time it caused a lot of, wow, you know, this is a, this is a big controversy. But very quickly there was a, a whitewashing program brought in where um, there was, uh, you know, an inquiry into it and all this sort of thing. And it was, it was all whitewashed over and, and, uh, and went away, but nobody knows about it now. And I certainly never knew about it at the time even, but it's it, it certainly re very revealing. Um, as James Corbett says, it, it shows how the sausage is made in climate change factory. I think, I think that's a great analogy to use for that. Okay, so having made the shift and published the book, you mentioned it frayed relationships of friends. Now, I don't want to aggravate that situation further, but I am curious as to the the spectrum of responses from people who you know who would have been firm believers, let's say. So anything from people who read it and went, Daniel, you're absolutely right. I'm dropping this whole thing too. I've been completely wrong about this. Uh, through to more defensive reactions what's the reception been from your old friends well certainly initially it was very polarized it was those people that um uh, really were, were kind of new in my set of friends largely not exclusively but largely who were dissidents of the the whole um um so-called um uh, medical emergency situation mm -hmm. and had done a lot of research prior to that whole situation anyway on lots of different topics and i was just soaking it all up because by that stage i was i was willing to question everything <laughs> uh that the whole that whole psychological operation you could say was really showing that i didn't quite understand in in the way i believed how the world worked that there was a lot more to it than i understood previously even though i'd been very much about you know and um, corporate agendas and so on um i didn't quite understand how the, the depths of, of the manipulation and the depths of the brainwashing so i was just hungry to find out on every topic you know different different sides of it and make it so i could make up my own mind and find a way with it now as I said earlier, a, a lot of my friends um, in the environmental movement were really still completely enmeshed in in the, the man-made climate change story. And it was very tied in with their emotional response to the environmental crisis that we face, which I can completely understand. I can really understand that. 
so I'm not critical of it at all. And so, yeah, it was it was a it didn't land well with a lot of people, and it really affected their relationships because they just said, you know, a lot of what I heard was, I thought we'd got over all of that, you know, we mm. we've we've got some we've got to get on with it and you know make solutions and da da da, and anybody challenging the whole carbon dioxide story that they wouldn't put it that way but you know the climate change denying climate change or whatever is just counterproductive to getting solutions um brought about and so on so that was how it was framed and they thought i'd become a bit wayward <laughs> mm. essentially there were people who were unwilling to engage and would have seen it as kind of almost immoral to engage with it yes yes now some of these people had in my view been taken in by the the psychological operation being going on, going on at the time much to my surprise mm. i would never have thought that they would have been taken in by it but they were others hadn't been on you know hadn't been taken in by that and were certainly critical and and questioning of what what that medical uh, situation that was supposedly going on at the time but climate change was just a a subject way too far to even contemplate that, that that there was a psychological operation going on with that as well. Right. And did you have anyone who maybe doesn't fit neatly into the category of like saying, well done, Daniel, that's brilliant, or Daniel, what are you doing? That's awful. Who maybe just says, you know, I'm committed to climate change, but that there are things in there that's kind of made me think. There's someone who maybe it just change their perspective a little or open them up to there being a different way of seeing this well i did find some people were much more open you know open-minded and would listen to an extent or maybe even say oh i'd give them a copy of my book and I'd, and they'd say um oh, i'll give that a read but what i found was that generally it didn't tend to go very far mm -hmm. um i mean it was a breath of fresh air i have to say when i did get that response from yeah. somebody who was firmly in the the man-made climate change side of things but i was very frustrated really about the lack of willingness to even just consider something different um and certainly uh, veering well away from having a debate about it whereas you know i just feel well open inquiry and debate is the lifeblood of science and this whole phrase the science is settled is a completely anti-science yeah. statement. Without wishing to patronise anyone, do you think we should look at this as akin to cult deprogramming, that climate change ideology can become so strong that it becomes cult-like in the sense that when you're in it, it becomes immoral to question it. So it, it, it becomes circular in that way. You can't get out of it through rational means then. Absolutely. I would totally agree with that. I, I see a lot of zealotry amongst certain individuals and, and groups and I I'm not going to name any 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 particular groups, but you can probably imagine which ones. Sure, sure. I mean, the the longer I've gone on doing this kind of thing, the more I've moved away from thinking rational dialogue is the way to to go about things. To thinking, reading more about people who have come out of courts and understanding what got in and cracked their perceptions open and allowed them to see life differently. Because whether I'm engaging over the the medical emergency issue or climate or any kind of geopolitical thing with what's going on in Ukraine or anything else, it, it's more akin. People are more it's like courtly programming seems like a more the more apt tool than rational dialogue. Well Richard, I I've 
very much come to the view and this is why the third book that i published which is written in collaboration with justin walker is on the money system because i actually feel that people are much more curious and willing to hear what you have to say about the money system and it's explainable the nub of it is explainable in two to three minutes hmm. uh, the the debt-based you know financial system and once people understand that i'm hoping and i feel very strongly that then they're much more they're, they see how my god there's this massive contract and fraud going on right underneath our noses but it's being disguised by smoke and mirrors the whole time and it's so fundamental <laughs> i'm hoping that once you know that that's a more of a way in that once they take that on board or at least start questioning seriously then other topics become much more approachable such as climate change so in a way i'm putting climate change on the back boiler at the back burner with people who are very enmeshed in the mainstream narrative because i actually want to <laughs> i'm now focusing more on money as a way in to creating debate you know i think that's a very interesting observation right because it seems to be that a lot of people are capable of criticizing the state or seeing through the illusion in one area and then amazingly completely incapable in another area and there's probably an extent to which this is true of me too there's probably things that i would find very hard to question which other people wouldn't so for example i know people who um have been for years very critical of the climate situation but had no cynicism whatsoever and still don't have any cynicism about the approach to the medical emergency and i, I know the exact opposite of that so like medical emergency people who who are cynical of that but have no questions about climate and and so on and so on you could say that about 9 11 and, and all sorts of things so it's interesting to think about not engaging with people at the point where they're holding on the tightest but rather at the point their 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 grip is the loosest it could be on a different area and then that filters in and at some point you think well hang on if if this area here is all corrupt and the science is rotten and blah 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 and uh, then it can't be that this other thing which i believe in is pristine and holy and no one would ever do anything with a self-serving agenda so i think that's an interesting uh, point you make yeah well i, I like the, the quote of mark crispin miller who's um a professor at NYU University, and he was running a very, very successfully running a, a, a course on propaganda and deconstructing it and how it works and how it's used and so on. So, so successful that the uh, the course was shut down. Mm. But he, you know, he's obviously a, a someone who's who's, um, and he he believed in man-made climate change for a time, and again was sort of unwilling to go there, but eventually did. And, and this quote, I think, just sums it up, and it's very simple, really. While it's very easy to spot the propaganda that you disagree with, it's far more difficult to spot propaganda when you agree with it. So really, in order to challenge fundamentally held beliefs and assumptions, you have to be willing to go beyond the emotional response that you have to that being challenged and you know the emotions are, are much more powerful than the rational brain <laughs> yeah a challenge for all of us last thing i'm going to ask i'm going to pick up on that theme of maury strong and the rockefellers again and ask you to talk about what you see as the overarching agenda here if this is being pushed why is it being pushed and how does it tie into other agendas geopolitical or med medical emergency agendas now i'm aware yes. that to an extent here i'm asking you to comment on the facts observable and to an extent, I'm inviting you to maybe engage in some degree of speculation. Yes. 
Great. In the book, there's a, a chapter on an overview of the politics as I see it. Um, and this, this is my take on it, trying to puzzle out, yeah, wh why, what's, the, what's behind all of this? And um, there's a great quote by H.L. Mencken, um, which again, which just sets the scene. The quote is, the whole point of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. So if you're a control freak, if you want to control humanity, then you want to control all sides. You want to control the opposition. Um, and as I see it, as the 20th century progressed, the environmental damage being wrought by our industrial consumerist oil-based society was becoming more and more clear. So big oil set out to control the environmental agenda by making the enemy, quotes humanity itself. And that's a quote from the Club of Rome in 1991. And thus the centre of concern, man-made climate change or man-made CO2. Now, my take on it is that CO2 was the perfect focus of concern because it was irrelevant to the real environmental issues and thus a great distraction. And yet it could easily be portrayed as the major problem to be solved. And solving this problem meant imposing top-down restrictions and controls on humanity. And then Big Oil ensured the science, in quotes, supported this narrative by setting up the institutions, in particular the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to do their scientific bidding. As the vast majority of funding to scientists and academics comes from governments and big institutions, which are themselves beholden to Big Oil, it's very easy to manipulate things to look as if 97% of scientists agree with the narrative. So big oil were clearly the villains and they were happy to be cast as the villains while actually running the whole show and increasing their profits, principally through increased energy prices. And let's not forget, and I've mentioned it already, the bankers who are always at the heart of everything, capitalising from economic booms, economic busts, wars, and in this case, both environmental damage, for example, big dam projects, mining, and so on, and, quotes, solving environmental damage through mining. <laughs> How are electric cars made? They're made through mining. And then the whole thing of carbon trading and carbon taxes. Yeah, let's make lots of money from it, essentially. What this all boils down to is the familiar story that's been going on for millennia, the story of ego, of separation, the story of some people having a great lust for wealth, power and control. And this is just how it's playing out in this area. So actually, I will sneak just one final question, because I know you're touching on there a kind of spiritual and metaphysical theme. I know that the book does have a metaphysical aspect to it about the idealism and consciousness. So maybe you could just allude to that a little bit so people know that that's there and that's what they'll be finding within. Yes. Well, I, uh, what I talk about there is how the the um the cosmic energies the cosmic forces if you like at this time are supporting a shift an upward shift in human consciousness as i see it and um so it, it's time for us in my view to engage with that and really break 
the shackles of the slave system that we're in and come together as humanity with open-heartedness to create a, a vibrant, thriving world where we reassume, we, re we take up again our true role, as I see it, what, what we're here to do on Earth, which is to be the guardians, the stewards of this Earth, rather than abusing and taking, taking, taking. It's something that I feel I'm encouraging people to understand that, really, and see that ultimately it's not the problem that's the issue. Um, or Well, there, there are lots of, you know, as I say, power and control agendas, and we're all enmeshed in that to a greater or lesser extent. But really what we want to be doing is focusing on what world we want to create and put our energies and our focus on that rather than focusing too much on all the crap that's going on. Inevitably, we have to do a certain amount of that, but not getting too in a fear state or in a dejected state. It's about, yeah, let's get into our hearts. You know, let's come together with like-minded people. Let's get off the mainstream systems as much as we can in every area you know be it food growing energy uh money systems etc and let's start creating the world now that we want let's be the pioneers of this new earth as it's often called so <laughs> that i really I, I all my books are about empowerment and they're a, they're inspirational it's not like oh you know we're under the cosh so much no it's like actually <laughs> we just need to take back our power uh, I love that quote from Shelley, you know, rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Break your chains to, to earth like that have fallen on you like dew um, while you were asleep. You know, ye are many and they are few. And it's that stirring call that Shelley had in the 19th, 1900s that um, I, I, you know, I, I say, yeah, let's let's go with that rallying call and take back our power as i say and uh, move forward in a good way daniel thank you very much indeed i will link to the book in the info box but please just verbally tell people where they can what, what it's called and where they can get a copy of it yes so well this book on climate change and my other two books on uh, uh what i call bioterrain medicine and uh, on the money system they're all available from me. They're not on Amazon or anything like that. I self-publish, and certainly I avoid Amazon. And they're available from my website, which is dandelionspeaks.msvr.uk. So that's dandelion as in the plant, dandelionspeaks.msvr.uk. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And you might be so good as to come back on sometime and talk about the monetary system and the Bradbury Pound and all that kind of thing. And so that will be be delighted to have I you. I would love to do that, Richard. Yes. Great. Let's set that up. Okay. Thank you. Great.